Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Jewish Executive Leadership Conference, JELCON, sponsored by the Redstone family and the Jewish Graduate Student Initiative, JGSI, sponsoring Jewish programming at 130 graduate school campuses around North America. I'm Rabbi Matt Rosenberg, your host this morning, and I'm honored to be here with Seth Jaffe. Seth is our keynote speaker. Thank you to those of you who are watching from all over the country. Thank you to those who are joining us this morning in San Francisco at the Ritz-Carlton. And th say thank you to Seth for taking your time to address our students today at this keynote presentation. Seth is the Executive Vice President and Chief Legal Officer at Levi Strauss, a San Francisco icon, which I'm sure you uh, have all heard of or are wearing right now. And uh, he's, been, um, he's been there since 2011. And uh, before, previously, he was the general counsel of William Sonoma, another Bay Area staple, and, um, and has had a, um, a long career as a general counsel, um, spanning both the legal and the business worlds, obviously. So we've got a lot of law students and a lot of MBAs. And so I'm sure they'd love to hear his perspectives about both of those fields. So Seth, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks, Matt. I'm really delighted to be here. I've been looking forward to it. And I appreciate all the, the kind uh, things you said. I'm glad you said it was a long career rather than a checkered career. <laughs> and I, uh, I, I, I have been out here doing uh, the general counsel thing for a while. So uh, I, uh, I, I like speaking about it. Well, thank you. I'm sure it's uh, going to be great uh, advice for our students and alumni, regardless of whatever field they're in. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your self-biographical sketch, where you come from, how you got to where you are, and a little bit about what you do from day to day. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I grew up uh, in New York uh, and in a, a relatively secular house um, in a part of Queens that somehow my father found that had no Jews. I, I'm really not sure how that is possible. Which part uh, is that? It's called Douglaston. It's uh, famous or infamous uh, for one thing, and it's, that is it's the home of John McEnroe. Um, and um, I then went through, through high school in New York City and um, went off to college and law school and moved out to, to California. And I, I, I've been, as I said, being a general counsel for a while, but before that I was at a large law firm. I was actually in-house at Levi's for a number of years and then went, uh, answered the siren song of Silicon Valley and spent a couple of years uh, trying to change the world through a, uh, an internet-based healthcare company that shockingly went bankrupt. Uh, not really shockingly, many, many Silicon Valley companies go bankrupt. And uh, so then I, I went to Williams-Sonoma, and from there I was uh, asked to come back to Levi's. I hadn't actually planned on returning when I left, but the, uh, there was an opportunity to turned the company around. The company had really fallen on terribly hard times uh, in the, I guess, the aughts, the early part of this, uh, this century, and it was a mess. And they hired a new CEO, and I was the first person he hired. He and I started on the same day, and uh, we, with a lot of other people, have been able to turn the company around and do some fun things like Levi Stadium and an IPO and some other uh, some other great things, and um, I've been able to build a, a, a global team of which I'm very proud. Thank you. And why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about about Levi Strauss? Of course, we know the genes, and you know we're familiar with uh, with perhaps the the person himself. 
but of course there's a San Francisco story there and there's a uniquely Jewish story there. So a little bit about the company and, and um, some of the troubles that you found it in when you arrived. So it is a, a Jewish company in, historically. Um, I think one of the things that many people assume is that it, it feels like a Jewish company and it, it doesn't, somewhat to my chagrin. Um, it, I love the company. I mean, I wouldn't have spent 26 years of my career there if I didn't love it. Um, and I think, I think from a social justice perspective, it's unparalleled. It sets the bar very high globally. It does wonderful things, makes great products, cares about its employees, and cares about uh, the world. Um, and our, our, our mission is to make an outsized impact on the world. So many of those are what I would consider to be Jewish values, uh, tikkun olam. I mean, it is, it is trying to make the world a better place. But it doesn't, it, for lack of a better word, it's not a very Hamish place. It's not, it's, it, it's not like you go in and, and you see all the, the leaders, uh, what, you know, what, what synagogue do you go to? Or, you know, uh, congratulations on your daughter's bat mitzvah. That, that's not happening. So for, the, for those of you, sorry to interrupt, for those of you who don't know what Hamish means, then you're obviously not Hamish. Uh, Hamish is like Yiddish for homey, literally, but it means more like warm, cozy, friendly, like, you know, uh, it's Hamish. There's no good English translation for Hamish, would you say? I, I think that's right. right. I, I always also... Because add, English isn't Hamish. <laughs> I also add a little bit of Jewishly warm and, and co cozy. So it can be warm, definitely. I mean, it's a very accepting, and uh, particularly in terms of... Um, uh, employee individuality, it's a very accepting place, and that's sort of a Hamish thing, but it's not a very Jewish uh, feel to it. That said, uh, the family that has owned the company since its founding, uh, although now they were publicly traded and so they only own a piece of it, um, uh, is, um, is Jewish, and, and famously so, um, Levi Strauss uh, was a great philanthropist uh, in his day. He, he uh, moved out to California around 1850 and um, uh, in connection with the gold rush, and he, he, he took the, uh, when he made his first $5 in, in San Francisco, he, he gave one of them to an organization that was a, uh, an orphanage. It wasn't a Jewish orphanage, but it was an orphanage. And that, so that's you know, simple math, 20% of his, of his revenue, and that kind of continued. We don't give 20% of our revenue to, to philanthropy, but we have always been very th philanthropic. And the Haas family, which has uh, owned the company since, uh, since Levi Strauss's death, uh, they're related to him, um, has been wonderfully philanthropic. Um, and that has mostly been in uh, causes uh, in the United States, but also some, uh, at least one member of the family has been a great uh, philanthropist in Israel as well. So um, the, the, the family is, is a really remarkable uh, pillar of the San Francisco philanthropic and business leadership community. And um, that was one of the things that, ca uh, that drew me back, um, the opportunity to be part of that. And the full and yes, I'm sorry, I didn't answer the question about what was going on. That was such a mess. So, in the late uh, in the late '90s, uh, the company began to lose its way. Uh, a number of things um, uh, were happening. One is that they couldn't decide whether it was the genes for everybody, 
or the genes for the cool sliver of very what we would now call hipstery folks who are going to buy the product and therefore uh, induce everyone else to, to buy the products. Um, that, and so the marketing was all over the place and, and unfocused. But also on a very important level, supply chain is critical for a, a global company, particularly a manufacturing-oriented company. And we owned many, many factories in the United States. And for years we had been telling the leadership of the company that we had to phase out of the U.S. ownership of factories. It was going to uh, it was going to ruin us financially. It's just not the United States is not competitive in apparel manufacturing. And rather than go from uh, 37 factories, which we had, to zero, we said, well, why don't we start phasing it so that we can balance uh, more productive factories overseas with some of the U.S. factories that maybe could make uh, high-volume products uh, that could be done cost-effectively here. But there was a belief by some uh, in the leadership that, no, we're going to make this work. We're going to stay in the United States until they realized we couldn't. And so all of a sudden, we closed all of our factories, which was much more, uh, much tougher on the communities that, um, that were affected by this. Rather than have the opportunity to maybe go leave one factory and go to another, they were out of jobs. And well, so, what year was that? Uh, in the, between 96 and 2000. Mm. So um, that, was, that was also a problem. So those kinds of things. And then there were a couple of sort of failed attempts to re, reinvigorate the company in the early 2000s, and, and they just weren't working. So then they found Chip Berg, who is the uh, Berg with an H, not, a, not, a, not the Jewish spelling of Berg. Um, Chip uh, had been <clears throat> the CEO of Gillette, and before that he'd spent 28 years uh, at Procter & Gamble, so he really knew marketing. And he began... The, to lead the process of turning the company around, making us, yes, we're, we're genes for everybody, uh, but we can still be cool. And uh, we, we began to reinvigorate our women's business and our European business, and, um, and it, it turned the company around to the point where we were, we were able to uh, go public in 2019 and um, have, have been much more profitable and stable. And, uh, and last year... Um, we hit uh, over $6 billion in revenue for the first time since the 90s. Wow. That's a, certainly a great turnaround. Um, and I see that you yourself are decked out in, in Levi's. Always. Why always. wear anything else? I mean, if, if you can wear Levi's stuff, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, unless I have to, uh, I don't put on jackets and ties anymore. So. And I, I would imagine that, you know, having invented jeans gives you a, maybe a certain superiority complex about the, your product. I mean, could anyone ever be caught in any other je jeans besides Levi's? I mean, they're not even, they shouldn't even be called jeans, I think. Well, there's, there's a certain truth to that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he really, uh, Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis, also Jewish, um, uh, patented the, uh, the rivet that secured the pockets that made jeans a viable product for gold miners who would stick big gold, um, nuggets, or they hoped they were gold nuggets in their pocket, um, and and that was in uh, 1853. Um, 
I'm sorry, the patent was in 1873. The company started in 1853. The patent was in 1873, which your math will tell you is 150 years ago. So this is the 150th anniversary of the 501 gene. Um, and so we're making, as you might guess from a marketing company, a very big deal of that everywhere we go and trying to, uh, to tell people, yeah, if you're gonna wear jeans, wear the original. Uh, and so that is one of the bases, bases of, uh, of, our, of our approach. And I, I always uh, tell my friends, I, I know when you're not wearing revised jeans and uh, you know, it's not a good thing. And I assume that patent has expired. <laughs> the patent has expired, and you'll see rivets on other genes, but the date of the patent, May 20th, 1873, is on all of our Levi's products. We own a couple of other brands, Dockers and Beyond Yoga. But uh, so we, we remind people a lot about being the original. One thing that, that uh, you know, always struck me about Levi's jeans, it tells you the size. <laughs> On the back. Only on the men's. Only on the men's. Yes. I mean, do you feel like, um, like maybe that's embarrassing for some people? You know. Uh, so we're very much into body uh, body inclusivity, and serious uh, question, by the way. It's, yeah, no, I understand. I've wondered the same thing myself, um, and during periods where my weight was not where I was happy about it. Um, I thought, you know, maybe I should just rub off the <laughs> size. Just change the six into like a two, you yeah, know. Exactly. But uh, no, um, I think on balance, uh, we think that that's how, it's, that's how it's always been. And we haven't gotten um, a lot of pushback from it. And I think now uh, we're hopefully getting to a point uh, where people, if, if they're a large size, they say, hey, I'm a large size. And you know, that's, if you don't like it, that's your problem. And one of the reasons we bought Beyond Yoga a year and a half ago, which is, as you might guess, a, an athleisure company that makes um, uh, uh, clothes that you can wear for yoga or for hanging out uh, or anything else is because the, it's a woman-founded company uh, that has always been about body positivity and um, has uh, been really brought their ethos uh, into, into, Levi, into Levi's, which has also uh, been synergistic with ours. Now let's talk a little bit about your transition from the legal world, strictly speaking, to the business world. And I, and I understand you spent some time in a purely business sense as well in the middle there in, in the, the Silicon Valley, or was that also in a general counsel type? No, it was in a general counsel role, but, but you know, the company had at its height 100 employees, and so everybody was doing business. Uh, you, you, weren't, you couldn't just be the general counsel. I was also the chief administrative officer, so pretty much all the back-end stuff uh, went through me. But um, so, so how, how did yeah. that shift happen? Yeah. And uh, what what advice would you give to somebody who's looking into be, being a GC? So I think one of the the critical th things in being a general counsel for a uh, for a company uh, or even for a government institution or a nonprofit is you have to really like the business. Um, if you're if you're working for a company where the business isn't that interesting to you, you're you're in the wrong place. Uh, because the goal for general counsels and their teams is not to have fantastic legal product. That is a path to the goal. The goal is to make the business successful and to be part of a team that's going to, to, be, uh, to achieve success as, as, as the company defines it, which is not necessarily always the highest revenue or the highest profitability, 
but usually is, and you have to like that. And so that would be sort of going in. If, if you're not that interested in that, then you probably would be happier at a law firm where profit and loss is not, the law firm profit and loss is important, but the profit and loss of the companies that you serve is not as important. So one thing is you should like the business. Another thing is, um, and, and this I think is really important for, for any uh, legal job or, or almost any other job, is to be clear on what's important to you. Uh, what are your values? Um, is this company going to be a place where your values are going to be respected and even enhanced? Um, because if you're always coming up against that, that clash, um, you, you're going to be unhappy uh, pretty soon. Um, I have some other thoughts about about leadership and success, but those are a couple of things that I think about in terms of when you're coming into a company from, let's say, uh, consulting in the, on the business side or law firm on the legal side. Is working in a law firm or, again, on the business side, maybe a consultancy firm or a larger investment bank or something like that, do you recommend that people coming right out of school should get their feet wet in those sort of environments before trying something a little bit more entrepreneurial or even strictly business focused? 100%. I think that very few companies, I'll speak first on the legal side, but I think the same is pretty true on the business side, a little bit less. But for certainly on the legal side, yeah, absolutely. And I, I teach at Berkeley Law, and I'm going to start also teaching at University of San Francisco Law School this fall. And I tell my students, this course is about being a general counsel, but I'm not recommending you do that right out of law school. Very few companies, almost none, have the, uh, have the interest or capacity to teach uh, how to be a lawyer. You, th you don't really learn how to do that in law school. You learn a lot of theory and, and some practical lessons, but a lot of it is, is not applicable to what do I do on the first day of the job. And so in order to learn that, I think you have to go to a law firm um, on the legal side and do something that gives you a deeper expertise on the business side so you don't show up uh, out of undergrad or out of M MBA school and say, I'm here, I'm really smart, well, what do I do? You want to be able to come in and say, I have you know, deeper expertise in finance or marketing or, or patent law or whatever it is that you're, you've learned in, in your uh, institution that before you go into entrepreneurship or a uh, larger company. And what, uh, what type of law were you practicing at the firm? I was doing a combination of IP and antitrust, uh, and that turns out that that's what got me to Levi's the first time. I, I was handling an IP case for them against uh, their old uh, enemy, our old enemy, Jordash, uh, which um, I don't think is in business anymore. And, and uh, also a Jewish-owned company. I think. Yes, it was, and the, I think uh, there are a number of them. Uh, I think Guess was also. Guess, yeah, was Guess also, was the Marciano yeah, family. Yeah, the Marcianos. So, um, and they, the, the Levi's took note of my work and asked me to apply for a job there. And um, what what type of cases across your desk most frequently today in your current role? Is it more litigation? Is it more IP? Or so I, um, all of the above. Um, we're a, a global company. We do business in 110 countries. Every one of those countries has their own legal problems and their own legal systems. Um, so needless to say, I don't do all that myself. Um, I have a large team of about 65 people globally in, in about 10 different countries. 
and um, we do a lot of uh, IP work because people are continuously knocking off our trademarks, and those are the the, the key assets of the company. Uh, so we do a lot of that. We do a lot of regulatory work. So if, if you know, France wants to uh, prevent you from putting prices on your products, I'm making this up, um, you have to be able to figure out how to, how to deal with that regulatory uh, regime or obviously sustainability has become a big deal. So we're doing a lot of work on sustainability across the globe. Um, but I would say that um, deals, IP, and um, regulatory are, uh, and privacy are probably the biggest uh, areas. I also oversee both uh, the uh, what I what we now call enterprise resilience, but basically security and thinking ahead. What's it going to be like if we want to do business in Colombia or Iran someday or something like that? How do we do that safely? And I oversee the Levi Strauss Foundation, which is the philanthropic arm of the company. Uh, and which is a uh, uh, really my passion. So tell us a little bit uh, more about that. And I know you mentioned earlier your thoughts on leadership and success in general. You could uh, roll this. Sure. Story. So the uh, the foundation uh, is about uh, sixty plus years old, and was started by um, one of the uh, Hazes when they were running the company, and uh, it has uh, it's a small foundation in the in the greater scheme of things. We we have about an $11 million budget each year. Um, so what we do is we try to focus on uh, what, what in the business world would be called early stage, uh, uh, but in this case it's early stage grantees. Um, smaller grantees that can make a bigger difference in the community and can influence larger grantees. And what we, we focus on a number of, of key areas rather than going across the board. For example, all of us are interested in education, but we don't, we don't fund education. So we focused on immigrant rights, um, social justice in a, in a broader sense of the world, word, excuse me, broader sense of the word, uh, worker rights and well-being, um, and uh, a couple of other areas. And um, we're now looking at, uh, support, we are now supporting reproductive justice, which of course is um, super controversial. Um, and um, we're, we're, we're also uh, uh, looking at protecting democracy, which has become a critical issue in the United States and in a number of other countries. So uh, that's what the foundation does. Um, in terms of, of, uh, of leadership, I think the, the, the key qualities that I look to when I'm talking to people about coming in and being a leader at the company um, have to do with uh, openness. Um, I think the, the employees expect that now, and, and I think it's critically effective for, um, for leaders to be able to be open about their own strengths and weaknesses, their own successes and failures. Um, I think uh, com uh, being in touch with your values, as I mentioned earlier, both coming into a, a company and as you make decisions. Um, I, I think also the, the, the whole notion of, um, of compassion is, is really critical as a leader. And, and um, I, I, I consider compassion to be empathy plus. So empathy is where compassion starts, but compassion goes, in my view, a little f further. And then um, you know, communication is one of the critical and still underutilized uh, uh, strengths that great leaders have. 
Thank you for that beautiful answer. And um, of course, tying into that, your own Jewish heritage, and mm. you've mentioned that uh, about your upbringing and about Levi Strauss himself. What does being Jewish mean to you, and how has it affected your life? So um, there, there have been a couple of key junctures in my life where my Jewish identity became much more clear to me and more important. Um, as I mentioned, um, growing up in New York, even though I was in a, um, a, a non-Jewish little town, um, I was in New York. So I was, I was clear that there were a lot of Jewish people around. Um, and that actually decreased my Jewish awareness in, a, in an odd sense. However, moving to California, um, it became clear to me that um, I was in a much, much smaller minority than I realized. Um, um, one of my first uh, senses that was both great and a little odd to me was I, I decided to join a synagogue and I went to my first and my first service was High Holy Days, and I sat down, and the person sitting next to me was the then mayor, Diane Feinstein. And I said, "Okay, this, this is a small community. I'm sitting next to the mayor here." So um, good seats too. And yeah, we were in the back. <laughs> the um, but then one of my probably my best personal and professional experience was living four years overseas for Levi's in the mid '90s, um, and uh, we were in Brussels. My I had just gotten married. Uh, my wife and I lived there, and my son was born there. And um, when you live overseas, pretty much anywhere, you are much. You realize that being Jewish in other countries is completely different uh, than being Jewish in the United States. And um, you know, our, we found a synagogue, which was really hard to do, as it turned out. And it was heavily guarded and and barbed wire and. You had to basically sneak in because there were so many anti-Semitic incidents constantly and violence constantly. And this is in Brussels, a major city, not particularly controversially um, anti-Semitic. So um, that made me much more proud and, and, and conscious of my Jewish identity and also realized if I want this to be um, uh, important to me, I need to both pass it on to my children but also figure out where where what it means to me and so I, I'd say it means two types of things one there's the kind of obvious type of of work um, I I've gotten in, involved uh, with Jewish organizations here but also um, with my synagogue and also I'm on the board of a of a school set of schools in Israel that are um, really the only large set of integrated schools they are half Jewish, half Arab schools. Um, very controversial in Israel and very much under attack right now. So that is a, kind of combines some values, some of my values, and it's, it's important to me. So that's sort of what you would say is the obvious part of being Jewish. But on a deeper level, uh, the values part of being Jewish about justice, which to me, I know one of the questions that the prior panel was asked, what's the one word that that, I'm sorry, I'm probably stealing one of your questions, but what's the one word that being Jewish means to you? And it, for me, it's justice. And so the, the notion of, of justice for, for everybody and, and, and getting the world to a better place, again, tikkun olam, uh, being, making the world a better place um, is the sort of quiet part of, my, of being Jewish and something that I, I think about every day. Thank you very much for that, Seth. Uh, we've reached our 
rapid fire round. Do we have time for one, one or two questions from the audience? Okay, if anyone from the audience has questions, I can hand you the mic. I'll just repeat the question. So the question is, how has Levi Strauss dealt with the fast fashion trends and ethical decisions related to that? It's a great question because we consider ourselves, we don't love the word slow fashion, but durable fashion. Um, and fast fashion is a, uh, in, in many ways, I, I don't think it's too strong to say, it's a blight because uh, so much of these products are ending up in landfills um, it, it's teaching a conscious consumerism to a, a, a generation or two that really should be more thoughtful about their purchasing. So we have a campaign that's been running for a couple of years called Buy Better, Wear Longer. So the idea is not that you shouldn't buy clothing, but you should th be thoughtful about your clothing. Buy better clothing that will last you and wear it a, a longer time. Um, having said that, uh, that's not enough. Uh, we still... Uh, have to do a lot of work to reduce our, our uh, footprint. Uh, making jeans is a, uh, jeans are mostly made of cotton. Cotton's a very water intensive uh, product and we use, so a lot of water is used in the making of our, of our products. So we're trying to find ways, and we have found many ways, to save water, reduce that. We don't use harmful chemicals. We're, we're really trying to be more conscious about how the product is made and also telling people, you don't need to wash your jeans every time you wear them. In fact, you can go a year without washing jeans, as our CEO famously said once on a national TV show. One more question? No? All right. I guess we're all out of time for questions, but thank you for, for that. Uh, I didn't actually know what fast fashion was, but I think I figured it out. We have time for a rapid fire round. And if you could uh, try to keep it to one or two word answers. One or two. Okay. Yeah. Favorite movie of all time? Favorite movie of all time. The Big... There's three words. Uh, sorry. The Big Sleep. I thought you were going to say The Big Lebowski. Big okay. Lebowski is great in my top ten, but The Big Sleep <laughs> is the sort of uh, hidden, uh, hidden answer because not that many people know it. Favorite musical artist? I'm going to have to say... Well, The Beatles are in a category by themselves. Yes, but, I agree. But The Who would be my... Okay. I'm, a, I'm also a big Who fan. Um, I understand you play the timpani. Yes, I've been playing, um, you know, I can't do that in one word. Uh, yes is the one word, but the longer answer is I've been doing it since I was 11. Wow. And uh, the timpani actually does appear on the Who's Tommy. Yes, so I think in the definitely. overture, there's some timpani in there. There is. Okay. See, I'm a little bit of a you are. music you're nerd myself. You're on it. Okay. Um, longest you've gone in between washes on a pair of Levi's? Well, it's a tricky question because I own so many pairs. How many pairs of Levi's do you own? Let's start there. Uh, I, well, I, I'm hoping my wife is not listening to this, but it's probably 40. And uh, longest owned pair, pair that's lasted longest. Oh, uh, there's a pair of 501s that I got my first uh, year, my first stint, so since the early, since the mid-80s. It's still going strong. Oh, yeah. They get better and better over time. And the back to the washing. Yeah. I, I honestly don't know because I rotate. So, uh, I, I so don't you just really don't wash any of them? <laughs> I, I do wash them from time to time. From, from time to time. Okay, favorite thing to pair with a pair of Levi's? Uh, a, a, probably a t-shirt, and uh, we make a lot of t-shirts. I happen to be uh, 
a lot of my colleagues wear t-shirts to the office. I'm a, a collared shirt kind of guy, uh, maybe because I was a lawyer. I am a lawyer. Uh, so I've, I've, I wear shirts like this. Favorite product that you make? Uh, favorite product that I make, uh, we make is uh, Levi's 501 jeans. 501, the original. Um, book that's had the biggest impact on your life? Favorite book is The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. The book that's having the biggest impact on my life now is a book called The, the uh, Book of Joy, which is a, a week-long conversation between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu. Very cool. Um, first thing you do every morning? Work out. What, what do you do for workout? I do a combination of the elliptical trainer or rowing, uh, rower, uh, or, or uh, I recently had knee replacement surgery, so I'm rehabbing. Okay. So I, do well, I wish you a speedy recovery Thank on that. You. Thank you. Um, most frequented app on your phone? Most frequented app is uh, currently Apple Maps. You know, a lot of people saying that today. I mean, people get lost in San Francisco, I guess. Traffic. Traffic, yeah. Um, favorite Jewish holiday? Oh, Pesach, for sure. Favorite uh, Jewish food? It's not going to be gefilte fish. Uh, it's going to be latkes. Yeah, well, I, so, some gefilte fish is awful. I'll, I'll give no, that. I like gefilte fish, I actually but it's like not my favorite. It gets a bad reputation because people don't know how to make it right. right. Okay, and you've already told us here one, one word you associate with being Jewish, which is justice. If you could think of a second, we'll end with that. Um, you know, I've, I've said this now twice before, but it is truly uh, what I think about as, as being Jewish, and it's tukun olam, it's healing the world. Thank you very much for that. Thank you, Seth Jaffe, Chief Legal Officer Levi Strauss, for joining us today at the Jewish Executive Leadership Conference. Thank you to all those in the live studio audience here in San Francisco, and for those of you tuning in from around the country. I'm Matt Rosenberg, and everyone should have a wonderful day.